But I ain't a conspiracy theory, I'm real. And I'm standing right here, and I know what the truth is. I knocked the shit out of this Chinese virus after about a week. When we talk about magnetic, we're talking about Satanism, necromancy, alchemy, witchcraft, worship of Satan, and the worship of dark forces. Welcome to the Wet Wired Podcast, premium episode number one, John Deere and the UAW. I'm Sean Andes. And I'm Julian Paul Butt. Today we're going to be talking about the John Deere strike going on in Illinois and Iowa. This is from an October 14th article on ABC News. More than 10,000 Deere and Company workers have walked out on strike after the UAW, the United Auto Workers Union, said negotiators couldn't deliver a new agreement that would meet the demands and needs of workers. The union said its members would walk off the job if no deal has been reached Wednesday. The vast majority of the union rejected a contract offer earlier this week that would have delivered 5% raises to some workers and 6% raises to others of the Illinois company known for its Known for his green tractors. Thank you, ABC News, for wonderful, colorful writing. The tractors were green. If anybody didn't know that John Deere tractors were green, ABC News just educated you. The almost 1 million UAW retirees and active members stand in solidarity with the striking UAW members at John Deere, UAW President Ray Curry said. Brad Morris, vice president of labor relations for Deere, said the company is, quote, committed to a favorable outcome for our employees, our communities, and everyone involved. He said Deere wants an agreement that would improve the economic position of all employees. Wow, I know we're not going to talk about Taylorism until later on, but that is exactly the line that Taylor took for his entire project. This is astounding. I don't, I don't want to get sidetracked here. I want to keep reading this, but that's really something. We will keep working day and night to understand our employees' priorities and resolve this strike while also keeping our operations running for the benefit of all those we serve, Morris said. So again, this is Brad Morris, Vice President of Labor Relations for Deer. You know, I'll, I'll jump in here and suggest on that same note how remarkable it is that we've been seeing a lot of strikes this year and this month especially. According to a Washington Post article about a similar subject, there have been strikes against 178 employers this year, according to a tracker by Cornell University's School of Industrial and Labor Relations. We're looking at about 12 strikes involving 1,000 or more workers so far this year, which is considerably higher than 2020 when the pandemic took hold. Where is this coming from? Uh, this is the Washington Post. specifically. And I actually, I, I, I'm literally just now getting a message from my, from my own union discord, <laughs> literally right this second. <laughs> what timing am I right? The article, if anybody's interested, is strikes are sweeping the labor market as workers wield new leverage. Uh, this is just a few days ago. We've been seeing this kind of response throughout this year and throughout the pandemic but especially towards sort of the more mature period 
of the pandemic, where I think they're calling it the Great Resignation. Well, that's exactly what it's been referred to as. That's an unfortunate diminutive. It makes it seem as if something volitional is going on, rather than that these strikes and resignations are driven by workforce pressures, our work environment pressures on employees. Calling it something like a resignation, it sounds very polite to say, I decided to resign my job, not there was a pattern of demands and expectations that were placed upon me that I could no longer bear, so I had to quit. I think that's a different attitude. Or not sign up again, which has been in the news quite a bit throughout this year. The idea of a lot of low-wage employers not, quote, being able to find work, which leads off the rest of that sentence, which is not being able to find work at the wages that they're paying and the benefits that they're paying and the kind of work that they demand. All of this ties in directly with the main topic of this show. This is a time period where we're experiencing, I'm about to say this as as if it doesn't always happen, but we're experiencing a lot of talking past one another when it comes to discussing these issues in a public forum. There are a lot of people that have very ideological foundations to their beliefs about unions or their beliefs about minimum wage or their beliefs about benefit packages, or any sort of labor laws in general. And it makes it difficult to have have a rational conversation, or at least a fruitful one, even if it's not rational, (laughs) about these topics. If we're talking about minimum wage, we should be balancing the humanitarian interests and benefit to society. We need to think about the, the human impact when people are living at or below poverty level, the impact on their families when they're working 70 or 80 hours a week and have little to no time with their children. We need to have concern for that and discuss those things in those terms, while at the same time talking about the economic impact or the impact on our, on our economy when we have so many people at a subsistence level of income. Of course, we have to have concern for the viability of businesses. We don't have any jobs if everybody is going under paying wages. And that is especially a concern when we're talking about smaller businesses, businesses where there is less than a million dollars in recurring revenue, or they have have less than 10 employees or something like that. These are incredibly fragile businesses. They can go under very easily. Yeah, the five year is the magic year for most small businesses. Exactly. And most don't make it through one. Yeah. Before they close up. I don't think that we should be encouraging people to start businesses that don't have any legs underneath. You know, that's up to them to make it a viable business. And the risk is theirs, of course. And viable without relying on exploitation as the, the foundation of sustainable profit. Totally. That shouldn't be the card everybody is going to play to make their business run. That's not a viable business. Not in not in a world with humanitarian concerns. Yeah. Not to get too sidetracked. I often think about um, the business that requires some piece of machinery that costs ten thousand dollars, and that piece of machinery, no matter what, costs ten thousand dollars. The nice version of it costs twelve thousand dollars, and the shitty version costs eight thousand dollars. There's no way around that. When they look at the upfront investment, 
and when they're considering the return on investment and and the break-even point in their three-year financial models, $10,000 is, is an unmoving number, plus or minus, but it doesn't move because that asset has to be part of this business. When they're creating the plan and they're writing the business plan and proposing it to angel investors or banks or whomever, there's no question $10,000 has to be there for that asset because that's an essential function of this business. They can't do the thing without this device or whatever it is. So there's no question there. It, it has to be part of it. Likewise, reasonable labor has to be part of it. But I think that it's easier to fudge that part and pretend that it's not essential in the same way. I think you're being incredibly diplomatic right now. <laughs> Which is funny for me regarding <laughs> how I feel about it. This ABC article is specifically points out that the vast majority of the union rejected a contract offer earlier this week that would have delivered 5% raises to some workers and 6% raises to others at the Illinois company known for its, again, green tractors. <laughs> so how do we read that? I read that as these greedy workers weren't satisfied with 5% and 6% raises, they demanded more. That just wasn't enough for these greedy workers. Probably shiftless and lazy while we're on the subject. Under the agreement the workers rejected, a top-scale deer production worker would make just over $30 per hour, rising to $31.84 after five years, according to a summary of the proposal. Because I have been looking into starting a bicycle shop in Seattle, so some of my numbers are just off the top of my head from doing my business plan. Obviously, I cannot start a shop for another year or two because the industry is totally lacking in supply, unfortunately. But uh, one of the things that I looked at was that 7% increase per year is about right just to keep pace with all the margins that you can think of in an ordinary and very average and not remarkable way. Uh, whether we're talking about cost of living, rent, 7% is what I came to in my calculations to figure out what's going to be the standard increase for this bike shop. Now, granted, this is Seattle, so I, I don't remember how I got my numbers, but as is usual for me after an exhaustive amount of research. <laughs> so. so obviously, Julian is totally misleading all of us, and he just made up those numbers. So. <laughs> <laughs> when we're talking about a strike involving John Deere, we're not talking about a small business. We're not talking about somebody with 10 employees. We're talking about a major corporation that since COVID started and lockdown measures were put into effect, has seen their stock price go from $170 a share to, as of yesterday, two days ago, $342 a share. <laughs> ABC does redeem themselves a little bit in this article toward the end when they explicitly point out that the, uh, again, the typos with this thing. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to paraphrase this because it's, the sentence is terrible. As the talks were proceeding, the Illinois-based company is expecting to report record profits between $5.7 and $5.9 this year. This is not a company that is facing hard times right now. They don't have their pockets turned out. The important aspect here that gets lost is that well, it gets lost by some. It gets recognized by a lot of people. But I think it often gets lost, and it certainly isn't mentioned here, is that the workers 
were largely responsible for delivering those five billions of dollars of profit. But yet they're not able to access a greater share of the profits of that company. Instead, an, an enormous amount of that got transferred right to the shareholders. And largely shareholders are not even individuals, but instead other corporations. Something else I would like to bring up is that a man named John C. May is the CEO of John Deere right now. And in 2020, his total compensation was $14,754,774. Is there any mention of his bonuses? His equity was $9,503,000. And cash uh, compensation was $4,940,000. No, this is not indicating any bonuses. And this is just straight from salary.com. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love it that that's their website. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, he's, a, he's very highly compensated. If you're wondering what the comparison of John C. May's compensation is to the median employee, which is $70,000 a year, that is a 220 to 1 ratio. <laughs> John C. May is making 220 times more than the median employee. You don't have to go very far to find the, the Department of Labor, Bureau of Labor and Statistics data that shows how CEO pay has consistently left behind average worker pay. A commonly cited one is uh, 400 and some change times the average worker. In this case, the, the CEO of John Deere, this is even an, an exceptionally egregious example. It's just regular egregious. <laughs> He's not breaking any records. It's just obscene on its own without being the most obscene. These are the circumstances that the workers at the, these John Deere plants are facing. But it doesn't stop there. To quote Ron Popeil, but wait, there's more. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say Billy Mays. <laughs> <laughs> no, Ron Popeil was the guy that had the, uh, the rotisserie chicken thing. <laughs> and the, and the, the, the pocket fisherman, he had the spray on hair. <laughs> I'm totally going to cut that out. That's a terrible joke. <laughs> so we're, we're going to go with a total uh, left-wing rag, the World Socialist website, for some more color on the, the circumstances that the John Deere employees are facing right now. The name of the article is Strike by Deere Workers Challenges Decades of Union-Backed Concessions Sparking Fears on Wall Street. It's from October 18, 2021. And I'm going to be jumping around here, so this is not the beginning. In a recently published article on the investor information website Seeking Alpha, financial analyst Harrison Schwartz notes that the company's stock price has doubled since 2019 and its profit margins have hit a record level of 13%. The sharp rise in the prices of corn, soy, and other agricultural commodities has fueled a spike in demand for new farm machinery. But all of this is threatened by the strike, Schwartz warns. So the workers have good timing here because the company executives really want to take advantage of these higher prices and the demand for equipment. But they're not able to deliver equipment because nobody's building equipment. This is great timing for the workers. Otherwise, they don't have anything to bargain with. If prices were down and there was nothing going on, then a strike wouldn't have nearly the power that it does in a time like this. After acknowledging that, quote, Deere has the resources to increase employee pay and benefits, 
He expresses the hope, albeit without much confidence, that the UAW will be able to end the strike quickly and push through a deal with minimal impact on the company's bottom line. It is entirely possible, if not likely, that John Deere's employees will accept a deal before too long. However, considering 90% voted against the previous offer, workers are emboldened to gain significant demands. Okay, so the offer was negotiated by UAW leadership and then presented to the workers. So here's where it gets good. Why did they reject it? How did UAW negotiate a deal that was rejected by nine out of 10 workers? And this is kind of an ugly story for the John Deere employees and actually anybody that this union represents. This union agreement that the employees rejected amounts to a pay decrease when considering cost of living. It also reduces pensions for workers that have been there for less than 10 years and eliminates pensions as a benefit for all new workers. This is actually a really raw agreement that was presented by the UAW. UAW leadership has also had some serious problems recently, and I think they've lost a lot of credibility among union members. Just back in August of 2021, this is from the U.S. Attorney's Office from the Eastern District of Michigan, Fiat Chrysler of America executives were sentenced in connection with conspiracy to make illegal payments to UAW officials. UAW officials were receiving bribes from Fiat Chrysler of America execs in excess of $3.5 million, and they were caught. UAW was previously United Auto or United Automobile Workers, but currently it is actually United Automobile, Aerospace, and Agricultural Implement Workers of America. Interesting. This is a very large umbrella union. So that $3.5 million in illegal payments was between 2009 and 2016. This is actually where it just gets sort of gross and hilarious. The illegal payments, this is, this is from the justice.gov website. <laughs> I know, I love these URLs. You know, I got yeah. salary.com <laughs> and justice.gov. They're like right on the nose with these, with these domain names. The illegal payments to UAW officials took various forms, including extravagant meals, rounds of golf, lavish parties for the UAW International Executive Board, an Italian-made shotgun, clothing, <laughs> designer shoes, and other personal items paid for with credit cards issued by the Joint Training Center. Fiat Chrysler, or FCA executives, also paid off the $262,000 home mortgage of former UAW Vice President General Holyfield. That's literally the guy's name. His name is General <laughs> Holyfield. I mean, if I was trying to write a bad script. Holyfield and his widow also received hundreds of thousands of dollars funneled through Holyfield's purported charitable organization, as well as sham companies under Holyfield's control that had lucrative contracts with the training center. So this is the UAW training center. They were basically funneling money into the training center. This UAW vice president had private companies that had contracts with the training center and then received those funds for doing probably nothing. On yeah. paper, they did all kinds of things. In reality, yeah. nothing happened. And his widow also received hundreds of thousands of dollars funneled through Holyfield's purported charitable organization, as well as sham companies under Holyfield's control that had lucrative contracts with the training center. In many instances, FCA passed the illegal Taft-Hartley, that's the statute that makes these criminal, Taft-Hartley payments through the UAW Chrysler Skill Development and Training Program, doing business as DBA, 
the UAW Chrysler National Training Center. So there it is. Ostensibly, the NTC was supposed to provide training and health and safety protections for FCA workers. But what they really did was pay off this guy's mortgage. Stunning. The sentence of these executives... Nobody gets held accountable. Why would you do that? <laughs> oh, there were some indictments. Congress enacted the Taft-Hartley Act to ensure that union members could have confidence in their union leaders. FCA violated these principles through corruption by lavishing millions of dollars in gifts and cash upon UAW leaders. The FCA, again, Fiat Chrysler of America, sought to improve its relationship with UAW leaders and FCA thereby harmed the hardworking men and women of the UAW. This is, these are sentencing remarks. Got it. By the uh, acting U.S. attorney, Mosin. These payments to the UAW leadership were to get them to agree to negotiated positions and then present these softened positions to the workers and convince the workers to accept them. The UAW workers are showing up in good faith, but the deals that they're being asked to vote on and then the leadership is trying to convince them to accept are these softened positions that are not their positions at all. Instead, they're the bribed positions that the leadership is taking. The $30 million fine was directed at the FCA, but this is again from the article. Thus far, as part of this investigation of illegal payments by FCA to UAW officials, as well as fraud and embezzlement by other UAW officers, 14 individuals have been convicted of federal crimes, including three former FCA executives. They include former FCA Vice President for Employee Relations, Alphonse Giacobelli, 66 months in prison. Former FCA Financial Analyst, Jerome Durden, 15 months in prison. Former Director of FCA's Employee Relations Department, Michael Brown, 12 months in prison. Former UAW Presidents, Dennis Williams, 21 months in prison, and Gary Jones, 28 months in prison. Former UAW Vice Presidents, Norwood Jewell, 15 months in prison. And Joseph Ashton, another vice president, 30 months in prison. Former UAW Region 5 director and UAW board member Vance Pearson, 12 months in prison. Former UAW Midwest CAP president Edward Nick Robinson, 12 months in prison. I wonder if they'll call him Nick in prison. <laughs> Former senior UAW officials Verdell King, 60 days in prison. Keith Mickens, another senior official, 12 months in prison. Nancy A. Johnson, 12 months in prison. And these are all UAW officials. Michael Grimes, 28 months in prison. Monica Morgan, the widow of UAW Vice President General Holyfield, 18 months in prison. Holyfield died in 2015. No months in prison for Holyfield. <laughs> these workers know exactly what's going on. They're very well aware of the corruption in their own union. They're really getting squeezed from both ends here. This is the part that I find the worst, that these workers are really getting it from both sides. The people that are supposed to be negotiating in good faith on their behalf are, at least the current group, are associated with the group that was just convicted of taking all these bribes and serving a bunch of prison time. In August, that was just two months ago. And the fact that they actually got convicted, to me, speaks volumes, in the sense that trial and successful conviction is in itself a feat. I, I should lay all of my cards on the table, so to speak, including my membership card, uh, which is that I'm a wobbly. I don't necessarily have a favorable view of conventional unions, per se. To draw a slight distinction with, without getting too far off topic here, I think that industrial unionism, revolutionary industrial unionism, is 
much more efficacious when it plays out and when you have workers organized for direct action, or as the Wobblies say, direct action gets the goods. It is much more focused on the workers having direct control, not only of the union, but over the tactics and the strategy and the workplace itself to whatever degree is possible. But when we see conventional unions, it gets so mired in this sort of freight train of momentum that has entrenched sort of, if you will, establishment unionism that really, in my view, more often than not, functions more to the benefit of the employer than the employee of that particular union, where those involved in leadership positions of these types of unions can often check the box of the whatever marginal percentage raise per year, and the contract is signed and everybody's happy. But at the same time, that sort of activity often precludes the possibility for workers to make real demands when things are not going well, because the employer says, well, we've already negotiated, and the union's job is to make the workers involved in the union shut the fuck up. That is not a great arrangement for collective bargaining. It's an incredibly disingenuous situation when you have an obviously corrupted organization like the UAW acting as a self-interested third party in relation to corporate executives and the workers. So you basically have three groups trying to get something for themselves, and one group gets shafted the better the other one does. Yeah. Or gets more shafted the better the other one does. So every benefit that this relatively small group of UAW leadership gets, that is uh, directly related to something that the workers don't get. Even when it's not absolute corruption or something like that, like taking bribes, this model of, of, of union organization, they do a lot of other things that really uh, put themselves in advantageous positions and give themselves opportunities that the workers never have access to. They grant themselves raises. <laughs> yeah. They embezzle union organization money. They have credit cards. They spend on personal expenses. I mean, this union is just notorious for this stuff. And they've been at it for some time now. I, I don't know that there is a way to reform this particular union. I, I think that, that auto workers would be better off dumping them in favor of somebody else. I don't know what kind of obligation they have to stick with this union versus getting involved with another one. I think it gets to the point in some organizations that it just doesn't make sense to try to clean it up. It makes sense to just get rid of it. Yeah. I described it earlier as a freight train just to describe the momentum that we're talking about. And that's about. really what it is, is that the UAW has so much momentum and has established so much infrastructure. It is, it's really sort of dug in like a tick. You can't really get it out. Yeah. They have largely helped to create or at least didn't do anything to really slow down or prevent this decades-long scenario where corporations have enjoyed really high productivity and profit and incredibly low wages in relation to how much money they're making. I was reading the stats about the CEO pay for John Deere. That is not an anomaly. Like you mentioned, the extreme end of this is 400 to 1. And really, that's not even the extreme edge. That's the corporate U.S. average that's often cited. I don't remember the exact statistic, but that's a very commonly cited statistic. We can't expect a nation of people to do well and to have satisfaction in their jobs and, and maintain this good productivity that we're expecting when it's always at the expense of the individual workers. 
That's not any way for us to go forward. Instead of thinking about things in terms of right and wrong or just and unjust, just think about this humanitarian angle. This is not a good idea to have people that are just constantly getting denied access to all of the benefits that this very small group are accessing regularly. Yeah. What kind of society do we want to have? We, we should always be asking ourselves that question. What are we building here? What are our values? I don't think that there is a long-term way to continue doing that without turning from what we're doing now into outright oppression. Because you just can't convince people to keep eating shit forever. Yeah. At a certain point, it just breaks down. I think we might be witnessing a bit of a breakdown. I was in a conversation with somebody recently who I'm not naming right now. He expressed this sort of disbelief, like, well, what are people doing for money Like when they quit these jobs? I mean, like, I don't know. How are they living? I don't understand. It wasn't so much a value judgment that I was hearing when this person was saying these things. It was just a total lack of touch with what was happening with the average person. Yeah. This is somebody who has been living in rarefied air for some time now, and it doesn't really have a way to relate to the lives of these John Deere workers that are on strike or somebody who's going to decide, fuck it, I don't want this shitty restaurant job anymore. I will figure out what to do. I might sleep on my cousin's couch for a while, as long as he'll let me at least, because I need to figure yeah. something different out. Because this is no life. This is no way to live. I'm tired of being abused, basically. And that's really what we're talking about. Thank you for listening to the first premium episode of the Wet Wired podcast. Your support means everything to us and helps make this podcast possible. Until next time, you can find us on Twitter and at wetwired.net. Eleven pieces of guaranteed cutlery, all for just three payments of thirteen thirty-three. But I'm not finished yet. There's more. Yeah, Come on, let's be honest. I mean, Ron, you give any more than that, they're going to call you Santa Claus instead of Ron Popeil. Right. Let me review first what you're getting over here. You get my Showtime knife, guaranteed never to get dealt. You get the chop and serve. You get the sportsman's knife, the bread and bagel knife. You get the garnishing knife. You get the carving fork and the carving knife. And you convinced me to put in four steak knives. But I said there was more. You know what's missing over here? You need shears. Here I have shears. Now, these poultry shears, I use them for a variety of things. I use them for cutting through chicken. You want to cut it in small pieces. You can do that with these shears. If you're a gardener, you're going to love these poultry shears. If you buy the shears directly from me, we sell these shears for $30. Forget the $30. I'm going to include it in the package. Now you have 12 pieces of the finest stainless steel cutlery, all for what audience? payments of only $13.33. But there's more. Over here, I designed a saw knife. Now, the saw knife is only for bones and frozen food. I'm going to throw that in, but I'm not finished yet. There's even more. Welcome to the Wet Wired Podcast.
bonus episode number one. <laughs> yeah. John Deere and the UAW. I'm Sean yeah, Mondes. I think so. No, no. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I fucked it up. <laughs>